Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. My apologies to uh, good people in Cleveland. Uh, I'm still drinking Baltimore's favorite whiskey, Sagamore Riot, for this episode uh, because we're doing two in one night, and I'm really not in the mood to waste good whiskey, and I still have some left over from the Ravens episode. So I'm doing Sagamore, uh, and uh, you're just going to have to deal with that. I don't have any local Cleveland distilleries over in my bar. I, I don't have quite that extensive of a selection. So if there's any Browns fans listening that would love to gift me some, I'm all for it. Uh, but until then, I'm drinking Baltimore whiskey. EJ, it's Browns Day. How you feeling? What are you drinking? I'm good, but only you could point at like 80 bottles in the cabinet and say, you know, if you want to send me some more, that'd be cool. And 80, buddy. We're triple digits now. I know. <laughs> I know. I was being conservative. I was just going with what you show, not with the private reserve seller. Anyways. <laughs> seller. Okay. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> Actually, given past events at your house, I don't want to go anywhere near the seller space. I was going to say, but... you bought a significant portion of them and left them here. So Yeah, yeah. No, that's totally... It's not like we haven't posted pictures of us outside of BevMo going, <laughs> prepare. Um, I, as we are on the second half of a doubleheader, and I have just returned to full strength off the DL uh, in terms of drinking. Um, I'm just LaCroix for the second one, but looking... Looking forward with some tempered enthusiasm. There's there's sort of the rest of the team and the elephant in the room. We'll get to that later. But um, fun division. We talked about that yesterday when we kicked it off with the Ravens. Always a super competitive, hyper competitive division where they just beat the living hell out of each other. So we get to talk about the Cleveland part of that edition today. And I'm I'm ready. Let's do it. So as we start off with every single episode, we're going to do the same today with our little 2021 recap, looking back at what happened last year. Uh, Not going to lie, very similar story to what happened in Baltimore, and they ended up with the same record. Very injured team. This team was not healthy basically three weeks into the year and then never got healthy. Uh, they, They started hurt and stayed hurt and continually got more hurt as the year went on. Still ended up at 8-9, and nine, which is kind of remarkable, all things considered. Had one of the more snake-bitten years that, uh, that anybody had in the NFL. I actually was out in Cleveland for the game against Arizona and saw firsthand just how unlucky they were. Again, with injuries, like Baker was playing hurt and then got hurt and Kareem got hurt. Um, JOK got hurt in that game. I think that was the last game Watt played before he popped his peck. Not that he's on the Browns, but just that whole game was cursed with injuries. There were these crazy missed calls, like five terrible, terrible calls in the first half that led to Arizona going up big, like directly impacting the score. Like I, I had never experienced what it was like to be a Browns fan before I was in the stands for that game and just saw with my own eyes the ridiculousness of it all. And I was like, God, they've been dealing with this for how many years now? (laughs) Like every year shit just goes wrong in the weirdest possible way, but uh, still a very talented roster. Some changes that are, there's really no easy way to say it. Fucking weird um, and inconscionable and not advisable that happened that we'll get into a little bit later in the show. That, that have that have not been fun to even uh, think about for the last several months. And I know there's a lot of Browns fans that that honestly don't want to think about it either. But we're, we're going to dive into it a little bit. I don't think we've even really addressed it since it happened. So we're going to do that a little bit today. But uh, other than that, still a very talented roster. Still have all the, the potential in the world. Um, 
we'll just we really won't know exactly how much potential they'll have until until we hear some statements from the league pretty soon here about what's what's coming down the pipe. Yeah, we didn't say anything at the time, and it's a good thing. Uh, I would not have been measured in my comments if I had made them at the time. Uh, in fact, the comments I made privately where I knew they wouldn't um, get spread all over the place had very little restraint. I, I, was, I was really angry. And I'm not even a Browns fan. Um, I was angry for other reasons, but I think we're to a point where we can talk about it without burning down both of our home studios and, and walking out. Um, but still still upset about it. But I also want this episode to be for everybody else in Cleveland who is dealing with that, uh, continues to deal with that, will be dealing with that for some time because of the way it was structured. Um, who wants to hear about everybody else in the building? Because there were a lot of people that um, had nothing to do with that move, happened to work for the franchise, and are still trying to put a good football product on the field. And, and we want to shine a light on them too. So uh, we'll try and run a little bit of balance here. If you think we get it right, let us know. If you think we get it wrong, let us know. Um, it's not why we're here, but we can't avoid it either. Yeah, it's 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 just the specter. It is the specter that is that is in the background of this season, like it or not, which nobody really likes it. Let's be honest. Uh, but we're we're gonna do our best to talk about everything today, not just that, but everything else that that goes on with this team because it is a very talented team at the end of the day, and there is a lot to talk about. And there were a lot of moves that were made. Um, you know, they they finished third in the division last year, but on paper, if everybody was healthy, they probably wouldn't have. They probably would have given Cincy a run for their money for division lead. So. Assuming they're healthy this year, they could still very easily do that. I, I do want to look at the power structure at B that that did make a lot of the decisions that were made. Andrew Barry in year three at general manager. Uh, in terms of drafting ability and how he attacks free agency, I found him to be very, very good, uh, especially on the draft side of things. I think he's a very, very good drafter. This year, no exception. Kevin Stefanski, I think, is, a, is an effective head coach. Uh, he stepped into a situation that needed somebody who I think was kind of a rock solid leader. And he filled that role for them, got him to the playoffs almost immediately, at least for a time, seemingly turned around Baker Mayfield and got him playing his best football, you know, beat the Steelers in a playoff game. Like that was the highest of highs for Browns fans that they've ever experienced in this version of the Browns. So I think so far returns have been good on Kevin Stefanski, uh, Alex Van Pelt year three offensive coordinator. Same thing with Kevin did a, Great job with Baker when he was healthy, all things considered. We'll see how he does with presumably Jacoby Brissett this year, probably. Uh, Joe Woods at D.C., I think he's a pretty good defensive coordinator. Um, I think, you know, again, got a little bit unlucky in terms of some of his best players getting hurt last year. Like, J.O.K. getting hurt definitely threw a wrench into things because he's not really a replaceable player. But I think with J.O.K. healthy this year, God willing, uh, we should see an even better defense than we saw last year for Cleveland. And then uh, Mike Pryfer, uh in year four at special teams, he was the last hold or the only holdover from the previous regime, which is something that you see semi often, you know, when you get a special teams coach that's familiar with the entire roster that is at least adequate at the job. Uh, generally, they're going to be the ones that survive the, the transition period, uh, even though Pryfer himself uh, has had some stuff happen in the past too, but Again, don't want to dig up every single skeleton on the Browns this episode. We're trying to be somewhat positive for the few Browns fans that made it this far into the show. Uh, overall, EJ, what is what is your thoughts, all things considered, on this Browns power structure? Andrew Barry has been very good to start his tenure with the Browns. People forget very quickly there's a, there's a recency bias. The Browns didn't have stability of any kind for a long time. In fact, they had the the opposite of that. They had changing horses in midstream all the freaking time from the executives, the coaches, uh, you know, those two sides of the house fighting openly. It, it was it was the worst of times for Browns fans. The establishment of Andrew Barry as the GM, bringing in Kevin Stefanski as the coach, really did change that. We haven't had much of that until uh, this offseason. But in terms of how he builds an organization, the approach he's brought, it's very modern. And 
successful. His draft classes look good. We're getting now to the point where we can start truly assessing those with, you know, players some time under their belts. We're going to get a, a fuller picture over the next year or two years. But so far, early returns are very good on what Andrew Bray's brought to the organization. Stability is sort of paramount. But in addition to that, the Browns roster was one we talked about last year during the season as one of the best in the NFL in terms of stacked top to bottom with talent. There are very few teams that could compete with him just on paper. Stefanski, I think the ultimate credit to him is last year last year they had as many misfortunes as you can imagine and still tickled double digit wins right they ended up at eight and nine but it very could have easily gone uh with a few calls here or there to 10 wins that's an impressive coaching job and he seems again steady not one to lash out. We're getting a little bit of uh, rumor backlash with Baker moving on, but not much. You didn't hear it while Baker was there. And that's the kind of thing in the old days in Cleveland, you would have heard on the front page of the plane dealer and everywhere else. Like it was open warfare. That hasn't been the case. He has held the ship steady and seems to be a coach that players respond to very well. Seems well suited to the city too in terms of the identity he brings to the franchise. So the two at the top, great. Alex Van Pelt, I feel real old because I watched him play in college. Pitt. Um, <laughs> that was That's not great. Uh, Joe Woods, uh, I think will benefit from having players there, but even when he doesn't have them, they, they bring a, a certain style of defense that frustrates people. Uh, in Cleveland, which I think is necessary given they their placement in the division. They fly to the ball. That's the one thing that sticks out. They fly to the ball. Yeah, they hit. They're, uh, he'll take, he doesn't take a ton of chances, but he will take chances, and he seems to be pretty gifted at, at calling those at the right time. Um, so overall, you've got a sort of power unit offense, defense, head coach, GM that have – really taking the Browns from where they were for a long time. It can't be understated that this wasn't like a couple of years of bad run. Um, it was many, many years. Like you said, they deal with this every year in Cleveland. They don't have to deal with that anymore. They have a chance at the beginning of every season. They can be legitimately optimistic and hopeful with the structure in place. And that's what you need from this combination of, you know, GM and coach. Looking at their assistants, to be honest, a lot of their assistants, I think, could very easily be be coordinators and, themselves it's a very and, deep coaching staff even at the lower levels yeah and have been uh we'll start off notable coaches on offense bill callahan the offensive line coach for the brown uh former raiders head coach longtime nfl coach tons of success and the browns have one of the coolest running games in the nfl and i'm going to highlight both coaches who are you know directly responsible for that but part of that is their offensive line and they've had a ton of success with their offensive line in general as a unit with individual honors um they've been very good there callahan's carrying that on for right now stump mitchell one of my favorite nfl coaches ever i'm just gonna <laughs> say it i love stump mitchell he's awesome and yes i watched him play too uh he's the run game coordinator running back coach for the browns 21 years of nfl coaching experience he was an nfl running back for 10 years himself with the cardinals and chiefs i remember him particularly with the the bulk of his run uh with the cardinals um you combine those two coaches the players that andrew barry has brought into the browns stable uh, they have a prolific run game for a reason, or multiple reasons, I should say, and those guys are two of those big reasons. I want to talk about Callie Brownson. She is the chief of staff and assistant wide receivers coach for the Browns, was the first woman to coach an NFL position group in a game when she served as the team's acting tight ends coach uh, when she was elevated to that role week 12 of 2020. Her stuff from that day on the sideline is in Canton. And she is, you know, not the last. We have other coaches already, other female coaches already who are coached position groups. She is in a power position in Cleveland, and it's notable. They help break that barrier. Um, Cleveland, over the course of the NFL, has broken a lot of coaching barriers and done a lot of coaching firsts. Uh, no, no stranger to that. So 
And Scott Peters, the assistant O-line coach, former O-lineman himself, uh, Eagles, Giants, Niners, Panthers, and Cards. So talk about bringing some diversity of experience to when you become a coach. Um, Scott Peters is there as well. On the defense and special teams side, uh, Jeff Howard, the pass game coordinator and DB coach. Now, that's an interesting combination, but I love it. Um, Served as the DC, the defensive coordinator at last year's Shrine Bowl. He was the guy with the beard running the defense that we got to see. Um, Mm -hmm. So really cool to see him coach up close again. um, An elevation for him to go be a DC where that's not his typical job with the Browns so that he can gain that experience, show prospective employers that skill set. Chris Kiffin is the defensive line coach, 15 years of NFL coaching experience. And I start with that because I don't want to say son of and brother of first because he had (laughs) nothing to do with the second part and lots to do with the first part. He's been coaching for 15 years. He is Monty's son and Lane's brother. So Monty Kiffin's son, uh, Lane Kiffin, who's the coach at Ole Miss, Monty Kiffin, longtime NFL coach. Chris Kiffin is with the Browns. Brandon Lynch, the assistant defensive backs coach, former NFL uh, defensive back himself with the Colts and Titans, and also a CFL player for Saskatchewan, uh, got a ring with the Colts. So he is helping out with DBs in Cleveland. So interesting mix of experience and and where that experience came from. Um, forgot to mention about Callie Brownson. Um, a lot of people are like, well, it's cool and all, but um, she played eight seasons in the women's football alliance and she was also a two-time gold medalist with team usa women's football so Mm -hmm. uh all the bros in cleveland that might be swinging down beers and being like well she never played (laughs) nope wrong she played a lot all of us (laughs) yeah she played a lot she was real successful too so uh earned her right there but great variety of experience in all these coaches in terms of different leagues different levels um, you know, some played, some didn't. And, you know, as always, we talk about relations and uh, family, you know, connections. They have that, too. So good mix in Cleveland. Do you know who uh, Stump Mitchell's fullback was when he was with the Cardinals? Off the top of your head? Uh, I want to say Neil, but that's not right, I don't think. You, you hear his voice every single week on Arizona Cardinals radio. Ron Wolfley was his fullback. Uh, I wouldn't have got that. Yeah, I wasn't a huge Cardinals fan, but I really <laughs> I like Stump because he, I mean, a it's the greatest name ever, and if you've seen uh, his visage, uh, he takes the best coaching photo in the NFL for sure. Oh, uh, elite beard game too. Yeah, no, hardcore one of the best coaching photos in the NFL. But um, I liked him because a he had a cool name, and b because he ran really tough. He was yeah. he was an extremely tough runner. Um, not the flashiest, not the slashiest, but like really tough and had a you know, a very long career. Um, so that was cool, but I don't think I, you could have sat me here all night. I don't think I would have pulled this fullback's name. Well, Stump's a great coach. Wolfley, elite tier radio color guy. So uh, hell of a backfield they had there. Yeah. Um, We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's get to the, the free agency period. And even though this this isn't a free agency loss, which is our, our normal first section, we're just going to rip the bandaid off and kind of address the elephant in the room here. And that's the Deshaun Watson trade. And I say this, I want to preface this by saying I'm a Texans fan. And with the information that's come out recently about what the Texans... <laughs> Uh, possibly or likely knew about what was going on uh, with these hotel situations and, you know, uh, women coming forward and telling them. And then, you know, they provided him with an NDA and then signed him to a contract extension three months later, even after it was reported to them. Like I, I make no mistake about it. My own fandom in the Texans is probably going to be taking a break because of that, because if people knew at the top, 
and then still gave him an extension without doing any sort of due diligence into this, it's on them. Um, now, the old regime, quote-unquote, that gave him the contract is gone in Houston, but a lot of the people at the very, very top are still there. It's a new GM since then. It's a new coach since then. Casario had nothing to do with it. Lovey had nothing to do with it. But the people above them, it's seemingly based on recent lawsuits, did know. So this is not a, a, a pot calling kettle black type situation here. Believe me, I myself question my own fandom with my own team because of this. I'm on the other side of this trade. Looking at it from the Cleveland perspective, I can semi-confidently speculate about two things here. Number one, the Deshaun trade was more because of Jimmy Haslam than it was because of Andrew Barry or Kevin Stefanski because it's reckless and risky, and Haslam is a reckless and risky owner constantly. He's constantly doing things that you're like, what, what, Jimmy, what are you doing? Like, you're just throwing away money here, throwing away picks. Like, that, that's what he does. And so this definitely fits more his book than the decidedly more conservative trends that we've seen from Barry and Stefanski in their first three years. Number two, based on how these leaks about Baker and his rifts with the organization are free-flowing now that he's in Carolina, I truly don't think they were going to keep him anyway. I, I really think he was going to be gone no matter what. It, it sounds like he just wasn't going to work out there. And there was, in my, again, speculative view, there was division in the building about how to replace Baker. The question wasn't going to be, are we going to replace Baker? It was, how are we going to do it? It seems like there was two sides of the two sides of the equation there. And and I, I truly think that Haslam's side won because he's the owner and what he says goes. The other side of answering that question, which to me fits more what we know about this Cleveland front office based on what they've done in the past, would be trading off Baker for assets, using your first round pick on best player available to surround another young quarterback who's dirt cheap with even more talent because situation is everything in the NFL. It could be any position at this point. Their roster didn't really need anything. And then you take a swing on day two with your extra assets on Desmond Ritter, Malik Willis, whoever. doesn't even matter. That, to me, would have been a more Browns move than giving a quarter billion dollars to somebody who, in all likelihood, is not even going to play this year. So you're basically throwing away 2022, which in the modern NFL, you can't just throw away an NFL season. Windows are usually only one to two years anyway. So they're throwing away 2022, maybe even throwing away 2023, because the suspension, which we know is coming, might not stop at a year. There's still several, several cases against him right now. For now, <laughs> we don't know what else is coming down the pipeline. We don't know how the, the Texan side of this is going to shake out. It could get worse. So at minimum, we're looking at a year based on the information we have on the day that we're recording this. This comes out like two weeks from now, so who knows? We could be looking at a year, maybe significantly more, and you coughed up how many first-round picks and a quarter billion dollars in the middle of your potential Super Bowl window for somebody who might not even play for you beyond all of the all of the the allegations that are if they're even half true he shouldn't even be in the league because even half truth should not be an NFL player if they're fully true it should <laughs> even more consequences than that beyond all of that which you and I struggle with immensely it's just bad process to Okay, if you want to replace your starting quarterback, replace your starting quarterback. Don't do it this way, because this is possibly the most reckless, risky, dumbest way to replace a starting quarterback who, regardless of how people got along with him in the building, he still showed up every day. He played hurt for you, put his body on the line for you, tore his shoulder to fucking shreds for you. And then people say that he's not an adult and so we're going to replace him with this. It's bad process, regardless of how you slice it. It's just bad process. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's horrendous, and the adult in the room comments, and, and 
other actions and comments that surround this about no, we looked into it. No, you didn't. That's come out. It didn't. It didn't talk to anybody of substance besides Deshaun Watson, which is bad process. It was done for a reason. They didn't want to find out anything. They wanted to do this very badly to the tune of a quarter billion dollars. That's that's mm-hmm. proof enough that they were highly committed to making this happen one way or another. And this is the really or another, uh, or another, or another, or another. This is beyond that. And I want to talk about, I don't want to talk about guilt or innocence because I'm with you. If even some of it's true, and at this point there is so much smoke that is so similar from so many different sources that have given statements under oath, probably some of it is true. And probably the Texans did know about it. And, you know, you're right. It can get worse. And that is a terrible thought. But even with what was known when this process, this trade was undertaken, I don't think the Browns or if your supposition is correct, Jimmy Haslam thought it through. Um, And I can't imagine what it's like to be a woman working in that building. And I can't imagine it because, look, I'm a tall white dude that speaks English and has an English sounding name. So every bias out there is lined up to help me. Being a woman in that building, supporting that program, being a woman who's been a lifelong fan of the Cleveland Browns, of which there are many thousands and thousands of female fans of the Browns. I can't imagine how they feel about this because it pretty much says, well, it doesn't pretty much say, it does say, We don't care what you say. We're going to do what we want. And that is rugged. And there's no way around that. No matter how it works out, whether he plays, whether he doesn't, whether they take a bath financially, that's not going to make it better, right? That doesn't help anyone. That damage is already done, and people are making their choices about that. Some people will just... You know, take a deep breath and say, well, there's nothing that can be done. Other people have already said, forget it. I'll never root for you again. There are fans of the Texans. There are fans of the Falcons who were also involved in this pursuit who have said the same thing. I'm embarrassed for my team. It's bad process. And it basically, you know, the female fans are saying, this says to me, you really don't care. And look, we're not blind. We're fully aware that there are a lot of things that go on in and around the NFL that say that very same thing. And the league comes out every year and says, hey, it's time to wear pink and do breast cancer awareness month. (laughs) I don't want to hear that from Cleveland. Like, I don't even think they necessarily should be allowed to participate in things like that because they have shown very definitively to the tune of a quarter billion dollars and a ton of risk, right? This is just about product on the field, risk, he might not play. He's not going to play this year, most likely. He may not play for longer. And at that point, you've indebted your franchise, both financially and in a draft pick sense and in a window sense, right? You're, you're beholden to that window. The window will be different by the time he is ever back, if that's the case. And if he is never back, you just set your team back significantly on several fronts, not to mention all the damage you did with 50% of the population that looks at you and says, that's what matters most to you, and it ain't me. Mm-hmm. That's that's rugged, and that's the part that I think about a lot in addition to everything we talk about of the uncertainty on the field and not really being able to sort of predict how they'll perform uh, because of all the uncertainty surrounding who's going to play the most important position for them, but I cannot get the other part out of my head and I, quite frankly, I don't really want to. Yeah, and I'm—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm going through—I'm going through the same thing, Browns fans. I know there's a lot of Browns fans listening to this that, you know, either are very against it or you know who are literally just about, you know, what is it on the field? There's a range of, there's a range of reactions to it. I'm not going to judge anybody for how they react to it because their reaction is their own. But speaking for myself as a Texans fan which is the only other franchise that is deeply involved in this situation more deeply than I think I even realized at the beginning of it or anybody realized. I get it. 
I get the wavering. I get the, you know, the opposite, the opposite of, of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference. I'm fucking indifferent right now to the Texans. And I've never been indifferent before. Like I've been, I've hated them. I've been angry at them. I've never just stopped caring. And for the first time ever, I have stopped giving a shit because of the people at the very top. And I know that there's a lot of Browns fans out there that feel the same way. And to be honest, there's a lot of Browns fans listening to this right now that probably feel the same way, that are really struggling to process that. Because for a lot of them, the Browns are the only thing they've ever loved, sports-wise. You know, obviously you got family and friends and all that kind of stuff. But, like, the Browns are football – the Cleveland's a football town. I was there last year. I tailgated over in Mooney Lot. Like, I was in fucking Mooney Lot in my Browns jersey, tailgating, playing cornhole. You know, having the, the, the best spicy sauerkraut of my entire life, I walked into that tailgate in Mooney Lot. Nobody knew who I was. Didn't even ask my name. Within five minutes, I had a full fucking plate. Browns fans are amazing. They take care of anybody who shows up in orange. They, like, they took care of me. And a lot of those people are struggling right now. And I get it. So, it's... It just sucks. It just sucks. All yep. the way around. It just sucks. And for a lot of people in that building, it sucks too. Because they're they're trying their best to put a good football team on the field. And in all likelihood, their efforts for this season are going to be completely wasted. At least not not wasted. I, I don't want to be mean to Jacoby Brissett. They won't be maximized. They just won't be maximized. And it's a shame. Um, but I think that's probably all, all I can really say about it before, yeah. <laughs> before I say something worse. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Um, but I, I do want to get into free agency losses, uh, not to belabor the point too much because we're already a half hour into the show, but I do want to get into free agency losses. And, and again, a lot of these moves that were made were made, and you can tell in a way to cut cost and shed caps so that they could make that trade happen. Troy Hill is now back with the Rams after a year in Cleveland. Jarvis Landry, uh, still an effective receiver, had some durability issues, but still an effective receiver, especially in the slot. He's now in New Orleans. Uh, Austin Hooper, even though he was likely only going to be a two-year deal anyway, shed him to save some money. Uh, so he's now in Tennessee. Richard Higgins is now in Carolina. J.C. Treader, even though luckily for them, they did have his backup kind of ready to go and waiting in the wings. He's now gone. Uh, Malik Jackson is gone. Malik McDowell, who's had some issues of his own, is gone. Uh, and Tack McKinley, you know, a somewhat valuable uh, rotational edge piece for them. You know, played probably about a quarter of the snaps. He's also gone too. So a lot of depth players and a couple key starters are now out the door. Um, luckily, the roster is very deep, so most of them were quote unquote replaced. But there's still a lot of work to be done in order to replenish the depth behind the new starters because, as we've seen before, this team gets hurt a lot. So they're going to need that depth. Yeah. Yeah. Troy Hill hurt to me. Jarvis Landry seemed like his time had kind of come and gone with the Browns. The Browns knew what he was, and, and it was probably time for him to find a new location. I think his new location is probably better uh, for him in the long run. Uh, Richard Higgins had a really interesting relationship with Baker and was weirdly productive when he was on the field. I'm not sure if that was just a, a Baker thing or if he's going to be more productive, but we're going to get the chance to see with the Panthers, maybe, depending on who's throwing the ball for them. Um, the defensive line shift is really interesting, and the most interesting one to me is Treader because throughout this offseason series, we've talked about how important it is to keep the center around. Uh, and J.C. Treader was a very good center. He performed very, very well. Um and he is still unsigned, which is a little odd. So there might be more going on there than we know. And yes, they had the back of the wings, but uh, it was definitely a money thing. He's one of the highest dollar players on this list, but he was also one of the most effective. So it's kind of the one that raised my eyebrows the most on this list. Um, other than that, yeah, a lot of players um, 
No real, quote-unquote, stars outside of maybe Treader if you're a big offensive line fan. <laughs> um, but, you know, a bunch of downs, a bunch of money. Um, yeah, I it, notable but not like, you know, fire sale notable. Now, in terms of retentions, um, there were – or at least retentions slash, you know, restructures. Uh, there were – Several that I thought were really, really important. Um, Dearness Johnson was probably the one I want to skip to, though, even though it might have been the cheapest one on the list. Mm-hmm. It's only $1.2 million to me because they have like five or six running backs on the roster at this point. The fact that they made it a point to make sure Dearness Johnson on the roster signaled to me, okay, Kareem Hunt's probably going to be moved here because you don't do that move with Dearness unless you want him to be the number two. Uh, Chubb's not going anywhere, but they also drafted Ford from Cincy and um, looking at the rest of their depth chart, I, they still got Felton, who's like, I mean, technically a running back, but also kind of a wide receiver. Um, they, you know, Zaire Mitchell Payton, like they, they got a bunch of dudes. Um, John, John Kelly Jr. Forgot about him. <laughs> yeah. This, that's the thing is the other guy on this list of resign that I hit first was John Kelly. And I was like, Holy crap, I forgot that John Kelly ended up on the Browns because they have so many other runners. We've talked about them as being one of the deepest rooms in the NFL at running back because they were three with Dearness Johnson, who was, in my opinion, a legit starter on many teams in the NFL. We got a chance to see that this year when he got a chance to start a game and, you know, ripped off a delightful game. You know, so they had three deep, but they're not three deep. You go deeper into this roster. This is, and I will die on this very small hill because it's not much of a take to have. This is the deepest running back room in the league, and it's not mm-hmm. particularly close. Nick Chubb at the top, Kareem Hunt, Dearness Johnson, all three of those guys could start on many teams in the league. You go out and get one of the running backs that we really liked that played at Alabama before he played at Cincinnati and Jerome Ford. You get Demetric Felton, who, yeah, is a little bit more gadget and is he wide receiver, is he, you know, receiving back, don't know. And then there's John Kelly, uh, former Tennessee running back, who reminds me a lot of Travis Henry as their sixth. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's silly. And that's just the cheapest retention in terms of all the big money players like David Ajoku got paid massive money for him which to be honest we kind of saw coming especially uh, when it became clear that Hooper was not in the future plans like David Njoku was the TE1 of the future he was going to get a deal which he's exceptionally talented I could I could totally understand why they did that um, Jack Conklin uh, eight, I mean eight million a year for Jack Conklin in his prime for a even though he he's had durability issues himself for a top 10 right tackle in my opinion eight million a year very fair value uh clown who's making more than jack conklin at this point that's the one deal where i'm kind of like 10 million for Clowney. like he's hyper niche role at this point which is elite edge setter in the run game and then you know he kind of sets up the pins in terms of uh like setting up stunts and shit in the pass game he's not really somebody who's ever dominated one-on-ones as a pass rusher. He's either set up stunts or, you know, they would line him up Mike linebacker and he would just run over a center. But really the value is he's, he's phenomenal in run defense. So 10 million a year, I, I guess for them is worth that. Uh, Ronnie Harrison um, to be there. I would probably guess third safety based on the depth chart, because I still really like Grant Delpit. And I think that he would play over Ronnie. Um, so he'll be the third safety. Uh, Sheldon Day, I think, is a fantastic rotational interior piece for them at only a million. That's a great deal. Denzel Ward is obviously, I mean, 20 million for a, a CB1 these days is just the going rate. There was really no way to avoid that. You're going to pay 20 million for a guy like Ward, who many people would put in the top five to six corners in the league. I don't have a list off the top of my head where I would fit him in there, but the fact that I'm not balking at that means that, yeah, okay, 20 million, fine. And then Anthony Walker to round it off, who has been a, a very productive linebacker for them and is also going to be likely the starting Mike next to JOK at will. Uh, so overall, they they sure spent a lot, and that's before we even get to the quarter billion spent on their new quarterback who may or may not play. They retained a lot of folks that they needed to, who you could tell who they prioritized. You know, the Denzel Ward contract was coming from a million miles away. Like they weren't letting him go. 
He was, you know, top pick for them that's played well, that fits in their system and basically met every expectation. So it was like, yeah, okay, what's your position? How's that measure up in the market? This is what we're going to have to pay to keep you done. Uh, Joku was more interesting to me. You sort of felt like this was faded. Explain that to me and that Hooper was more of a rental. That makes a little bit more sense, but this was a very deep tight end room as well. But the sort of wanting in that building for Ninjoku to be the eventual alpha makes sense that they would, you know, semi-reset the market. It's a half reset, and we talked about this in some other pods. It's sort of a half-step tight end reset. Conklin for $8 million seems like a value, whereas Clowney for $10 million seems like a bit of an overpay. So I don't know. It's like those things where somebody gets drafted, you know, in the second, and then they draft somebody better in the third, and you're like, well, if they pick that guy in the second <laughs> and the first guy in the third, I'd be happy. So maybe we just average it out and say they paid them both $9 million and then we're, we're cool sure, with it. Sure, fine. Like, yeah. yeah. That's kind of how I felt about all that. Um, Day and Harrison, you know, both at right around a million apiece. I – I was really sort of hoping Ronnie Harrison would shake loose to be uh, a sort of hitter box safety, which he really is to compliment Eddie Jackson in Chicago. Uh, they had other plans at safety. They drafted Jaquan Brisker, but Ronnie Harrison for a million bucks is, can certainly play on my team any day. And Sheldon Day is sort of the same deal on the interior defensive line where he's going to be in there, plug, take rotational snaps, do his job be assignment sound if you can get a guy like that for a million bucks coming off the sideline i know it sounds like a lot of money to you and me it's jump change in the nfl for a player that's that's reliable so uh, you know they they pick their spots for big money uh they retain some valuable you know rotational guys uh anthony walker's another one there that you know he played you know, almost 65% of their snaps. He's only 27, but again, fits their system. Not a star, not a huge name, but if you're a Browns fan, you've watched him play and play well. You're not at all surprised. 4-2, reasonable for that sort of second linebacker role that he fills. In terms of third-party additions, uh, obviously the, the the biggest money is Deshaun Watson. We've already addressed that. Won't belabor the point. Um, the other biggest money, which ended up being... As time went on, an even more ridiculous value, literally by the day, which is the trade for Amari Cooper, which for a fifth round pick for Amari Cooper, at the time, everybody's like, well, yeah, but you're paying him $20 million, so the price is lower because you have to pay him $20 million. That's top of the market. The top of the market lasted for like 48 hours after that trade because then Christian Kirk got paid and then all the other like actual wide receiver ones saw Christian Kirk get paid and said, whoa, 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 hold the fuck hey. on. <laughs> we now we need 25 we need 26 we need 27 and since then you know we've seen anthony brown get paid we've seen cooper cup get paid we've seen stefan Diggs get paid we've still all these guys have got absurd money Devonte adams tyreek hill they they all then reset their contracts based on the 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 kirk contract amari cooper has not so amari cooper is still at 20 million a year and you still only paid a fifth-round pick to get him. So as far as I'm concerned, you've got a wide receiver one for 70% of what a wide receiver one costs in the NFL these days. Um, that's a that's a phenomenal deal, any way you slice it. Because if that trade happened literally three days later, you weren't going to be paying a fifth-round pick for it. You are going to be paying a lot more. Completely agree. We've talked about this particular trade ad nauseum at this point because uh, I still can't believe it. Folks at Cleveland who get to watch him play are going to not feel any kind of loss for Jarvis Landry uh, when they get to see Amari Cooper out there. He is, um, yes, he is not a comparable wide receiver. He is a greater than wide receiver if we're talking about Jarvis Landry as a loss and Amari Cooper as an addition. Um, that is that is an upgrade in the fact that it you know, both draft and overall monetary compensation. So a fifth, completely ridiculous. 20 was solid at the top of the market, but within a week was value. So really good set of circumstances for Cleveland there. Uh, Ethan Posick, the guard for the Seahawks, who's going to be in their center rotation. I want to talk about their center rotation for just a minute because the the one they have slotted in right now, and you mentioned this when we talked about J.C. Treader moving on, uh, is somebody that I really liked going to 
you know, the senior bowl where we got to see him and that's Nick Harris, the center from mm-hmm. Washington. He was undersized. He was very quick. Uh, and he did a good job against some pretty mammoth defensive tackles in the pac 12 with motion and quickness. He wasn't a pure power guy. Um, he's certainly gotten bigger and stronger a couple of years in the league, probably ready for that role. But if not, <laughs> have a really interesting lineup behind him <laughs> in terms oh, yeah. of, you know, okay, if he doesn't work, you've got Ethan Pochick who played that position both in college and with the Seahawks. And then when we get down to the UDFAs, they added another guy who is probably a capable backup, not necessarily a, you know, frontier starter. They're like legitimately three deep at center after they let Treader go. So I can understand the move a little bit more now that, you know, we've done the sum total of the sort of off season gathering and that's what your depth chart looks like. That feels very Andrew Barry like to me. <laughs> no, it feels Bill Callahan to me because Bill Callahan has always been obsessed with the center position. With him, you know, it's always been about that wide zone. And it, so for people listening at home, if you go on YouTube and you type in uh, like Bill Callahan clinics, there's like 10 Bill Callahan clinics on wide zone on YouTube. And they're all fucking amazing. You watch those and tell me that man is not obsessed with the center position. He will do anything he can to make sure that center is the deepest position on the roster. He cares more about center than anything else because they have to do everything they call protections um in terms of like a lot of the combo blocks he teaches like you need a very talented center to be able to do them and he like nick harris is his type of guy you know hyper mobile smart tough all that kind of stuff but just like treader was you know like that that to me screams callahan like the hoffman pick specifically screamed bill callahan even though he's udfa um jacoby Brissett for Four six for what is likely going to be a starting quarterback for them. Like he might be the cheapest starting quarterback in the league this year, to be honest. Which, okay, fine, considering all the money that they spent to surround him with talent to try to make him as successful as humanly possible. Sure, let's go with that. Um, and then last one, we kind of want to highlight Stephen Weatherly for one point two. If we're talking about averaging out what Jadavian Clowney's getting with what Stephen Weatherly's getting. So it's like, uh, what, five, 5.7 per? Yeah, it makes it seem a little bit more palatable to me, you know, because I think Stephen Weatherly is a pretty good player, and getting him at 28 years old for 1.2 is a hell of a deal. I want to toss a little bet idea out there because you're always interested in some long-shot crazy bets that you'd never find on any sports book. <laughs> sure, go for it. Chase Winovich comes over in a trade from the Patriots just didn't work out. And this is an L for me because I thought Chase Winovich, when he went to the Patriots, I was like, great place for him to land, fits his skills. He's going to be the next one. Not didn't work out that way for one reason or another. Patriots choose to move him to the Browns. Now he's making $956,000 because he's on a rookie contract. Mm -hmm. That's (laughs) If we're averaging out Jadavian Clowney's <laughs> contract to $9 million, it's literally one-tenth of yeah. what Jadavian Clowney's make. What do you want to bet that Chase Winovich is more productive than Jadavian Clowney in this season? Oh, okay. <laughs> so in terms of like tackles and pressures, would not shock me at all. And that's where I'm going with this. Is but the, in terms of who who creates the tackles for everybody else, it's Clowney. Because Clowney yeah. is the edge setter Clown, that makes Clowney's the running the back go, oh, shit, yeah. I got to cut back into JOK. Clowney being on the field will make JOK have 100 tackles. Winovich being on the field will make JOK have 80 tackles. Yeah. I, d- I don't disagree that the secondary, but if we're going on directly attributable stuff uh, in terms of mostly pressures and tackles, I would bet Winovich for one-tenth the money as a sort of Patriots cast-off will be nearly as productive as Jadavian Clowney. Oh, if we're just talking dollars per tackle, yeah. Oh, it's, I it's, wasn't even... <laughs> I, 
I wasn't even gonna I wasn't even gonna grade it on a sliding scale, but hey, if you give me that, I'll take it because sure, if you're gonna give me the odds, I'll I'll rip them off. But you're but you're not paying him I mean, again, I say this is somebody who wouldn't pay Jadavian Clowney ten million at this point for, for what his role is, but mm-hmm. the reason why you bring him in in that role is to just feed your linebackers an ungodly amount of tackles because that's what he did in Houston. It was I'm going to set the edge and then every linebacker inside, looking at you, Zach Cunningham is going to get unlimited tackles because the running back has to cut back every single time. It works. It absolutely works. Like, that's why he's still playing, even though he's like bone on bone in the knee. Like He's really good at what he does. He sets the edge. Yep. He's an ass kicker in the run game. He's going to play for a while because of that. It's like the new Pernell McPhee, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> I was going to say it because we just talked about Pernell McPhee yesterday and how he's still playing you know, five, six years after he got to the Bears and his knee was bone on bone at that point. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, looking at the draft, uh, again, classic Andrew Barry draft, um, getting value on you know day three because they didn't really have any day one or day two picks. I mean, they had a few later day two picks, but the meat of the draft for them was in day three, and he's very good at getting value. In those guys, uh, shout out to the analytics department for the Browns, which is very, very robust. They're very good at identifying talent late in the draft. And I think for the assets they had left over, they did a really, really good job. Yeah, it's going to sound like I stutter when I go through the Browns draft picks if I'm talking about rounds because it goes 3-3-3-4-4-5-6-7-7. So... Lots of doubles and a triple right at the top in the third round. Uh, Starting off with pick 68, one of the ones they got from the Texans, Martin Emerson, the corner for Mississippi State. I really liked him. As much as I like Makai Polk, the receiver across from him at Mississippi State, I liked Martin Emerson, the defensive back, played on the corner for them. Really good size. Not the fastest, but super effective, again, against a lot of dynamic receiving threats in the SEC was in my opinion, underrated, even through the draft, I would have picked him sooner than this. The Browns get lucky and add another very talented defensive back uh, in the third. Second pick in the third for them, number 78, Alex Wright, the defensive end from UAB. Had some flashes, but actually kind of reminds me of Clowney and the fact that he's not super bendy or dynamic, but will crash inside, especially on stunts and can sort of straight line power at that point leverage out some offensive linemen and make a difference there so i'm not surprised he ended up there would not have been a fit for every system i think is a fit in this system that's given barry's tendencies for analytics not surprising there either uh last pick in the third round 99 a compensatory pick david bell the wide receiver from purdue one of the more divisive studies in this year's draft class was rated really highly early i think as more time went on and people looked at the diversity of wide receivers and some of the skills from the juniors in the class and everything else david wright just sort of slipped down he was hyper productive at purdue Reminds me a little bit of Jarvis Landry, not surprisingly, uh, in terms of the types of things he does. So that's the sort of role he's going to try and be carving out with the Browns. We slide into round four, pick 108, also from the Texans, Perry and Winfrey, the explosive defensive tackle from Oklahoma. He's going to have a good early rotational role for them as a slasher, as a penetrator. Um, he's going to have to get better about taking on double teams, but when they need somebody to go uh, get freed up by Jadavian Clowney's pins, Barry and Winfrey is going to be a fun one on the inside. Round four, pick 124, they get Cade York, the kicker from LSU. 
I heard less about this pick than I thought I would. A kicker in round four? Usually people jump all over you. What are you doing? We, we saw punters going round four. I think people were distracted by that. <laughs> I think they were because I, I did not hear one person go, what in the Browns spent a fourth on a kicker? But there you go. Cade York, the kicker from LSU. Uh, round five, we mentioned earlier Jerome Ford, the running back from Cincinnati, who both you and I really liked and had rated more highly than this, would have drafted him a little bit sooner. Started his career at Alabama, got out of that very crowded running room, found a great niche with Cincinnati, and was highly productive there, uh, both in the run game and the pass game. <laughs> Path to playing time on most other franchises would be a lot easier for Jerome Ford. In fact, there's some places he would might even be in the role for or might even be in the rotation for starters reps as a rookie. Here, not gonna sniff him. <laughs> not unless there are some <laughs> terrible injury woes uh, in the running back room for all the reasons we've talked about. Pick six, uh, a single pick, 202. Michael Woods, the second wide receiver from Oklahoma. Don't remember watching him. I might have. Pick seven, 223. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, the defensive end from Oklahoma. I liked him a lot. Nick Benito um, got a lot more of the flash and hype uh and rightfully so i think nick benito is a better player isaiah thomas was really solid and if you went back and looked at the film which they obviously did because they were scouting perry and winfrey at the same time they pick up his teammate later a little bit more stout than nick benito a little bit less flexible more defensive and less edge if i was going to make that distinction uh and then final pick in the seventh round 246 another center dawson deaton the center from texas tech who fits the undersized mobile mold oh what's this uh, an undersized center with an ras of nine seven say it ain't so the where could he Callahan possibly go pick yeah. of all time yeah <laughs> you know he, he, so what's interesting about him though is he's also a little he's a little bit different than the typical callahan mold because he's six five 306 so it's it's funny how they have like two centers on the roster who are now these you know kind of tall spindly but also thinner i love, I love how 306 is spindly and thinner then you're six five is a center <laughs> i'm just saying i love that those yeah. are the adjectives we're using about those guys it's true yeah. but yeah which it's it's harder to coach a center to have good leverage when they're six five it just is and leverage mm -hmm. is so key for being a center but if anybody could do it it's bill callahan he tends to kind of prioritize uh quick first step over everything and then he'll kind of figure out the rest as he goes uh, for me, Alex Wright was there's no way, no way else to say it. I thought it was a little bit early for him. Mm -hmm. If you swap Perry and Winfrey for Alex Wright, I feel a lot better about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. David Bell, this was like one of the only teams that I felt it, it was okay because he's just going to do literally the same thing Jarvis Landry did. He's going to be the mid-level threat on flood which is like their favorite <laughs> pass concept. It, he's going to be the mid-level threat on flood. He catches everything. He's a tough kid over the middle, you know, good contested catcher. Do I ever expect him to win deep one-on-one? -on -one? No. Jarvis didn't either, so that's fine. Um, do I expect him to be like a crazy elusive yak threat? No, but neither was Jarvis towards the end there. Like he is the mid-level possession receiver. That is the role. But luckily for him, He's in an offense that feeds targets to that role. So he's still going to get a whole bunch of catches. Uh, Jerome Ford is probably my favorite pick out of all of them. In terms of all the running backs in this class, he was one of my, one of my top three graded running backs in this whole group. I thought he was really explosive, really good feet, extremely tough runner, extremely tough runner. Um, it, it, don't let the whole like, oh, he's a transfer from Bama thing fool you. So was Alvin Kamara. You know, and that was one of the arguments against Camara when he came out. I was like, oh, well, he couldn't cut it at Bama, so how could he? Uh, how could could he be? It's like, I don't know. There's a lot of dudes that couldn't cut it at Bama, not because they weren't good. They just weren't getting snaps because everybody else is good too. You know, Camara went to Tennessee to get more work, ended up being a third-round pick because of it, and then was an all-pro caliber running back. Jerome Ford, again, quote-unquote, couldn't cut it at Bama, went to another program where he was going to get more snaps, where he could actually show what he could do. And he was phenomenal. And then he got drafted even late, later than Kamara. He's a fifth-round pick, not a third-round pick. So, again, I'm not saying he's going to be Kamara, but it's also not the first time we've seen a guy 
who was buried on the depth chart at Bama, go to another program, shine, show that they can play, and then go to the league and, and be really effective. And going back to my point earlier that the uh, Dearness Johnson contract signals that I think they're going to move Kareem Hunt. They're probably just waiting for somebody to get hurt during camp and then move him. Uh, I think Ford will end up being the new Dearness Johnson for them. He'll be the new RB3. Johnson will be the RB2. Chubb will obviously be RB1. Felton will be whatever Felton is. And then they'll figure out RB5 for the practice squad guy. But I, I can't imagine Ford doesn't make the team as their RB3. I think he's just too good. He's got a lot of skill. He's a decent pass blocker. He's good in the pass game. And boy, you get him the right looks in the run game, and he's explosive. You saw that at Cincinnati. So the whole don't cut it thing kind of, you know, I'm like, watch his tape at Cincinnati. They made the playoffs. Like, they played against really good teams, and he tore them up too. So uh, he can cut it for sure. Uh, I'd have to say Emerson was my favorite at the top just because I really loved his game. But Perrion Winfrey I liked a lot as a prospect. Jerome Woods was really good. And Dawson Deaton late, pick 246. Again, for where he landed and who's coaching him, uh, nice grab. Uh, for UDFAs, there's not really a whole lot to pick from. Yeah. Um, but I, the main one I want to highlight is just the other, 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 other center that they're going to have on the roster, Brock Hoffman. You and I interviewed him at Shrine Bowl. Super smart kid really really smart yeah and tough as well um yeah go check out our interview with him on the bootleg football clips channel got a chance to sit with him and really talk ins and outs uh about his experience how he handled things um got a really good sense of his attitude i would say he has a classic ol attitude (laughs) and is gonna fit right in the other guy i want to talk about is isaiah weston the wide receiver from northern iowa who is completely ridiculous in terms of height, weight, speed, but um, it's going to take me a second, but I'm going to find it because uh, I'm going to look up his freshman season. So in 2019, Isaiah Weston, as a freshman at University of Northern Iowa, had 43 catches, 1,053 yards, and 10 touchdowns. So one out of every four catches was a touchdown, and every catch he averaged one quarter of the field, 24.5 yards average. And nobody talks about it. Everybody was like, oh, he's tall and fast. And I was like, yeah, and crazy productive. Uh, Is he going to play as a rookie? No, he's got some things to work out. But you get a quarterback in there that can chuck it. Brissett can chuck it pretty far. He's a pro quarterback with a decent arm. You get a quarterback in there, again, not this year, but next year that can really chuck it. You run Isaiah Weston out of the slot, he's going to pull the top off some defenses. Big, tall kid, almost 6'4", really fast, and when you give him a chance to cut it loose, he can do it. All right, final segment for these Cleveland Browns. Team floor, team ceiling. This is the ceiling that we expect in wins and the floor that we expect in wins. And boy, is this a loaded question because a lot of it depends on information that we just don't have. And so I don't know if you went with the same assumption that I did, and that's Deshaun Watson's not playing this year. My assumption is that Jacoby Brissett is your season-long starter for 2022 and if he goes down you know that means we're looking at god who's their backup at this point josh dobbs yeah you know so my right now based on that information my ceiling for them is nine wins like i see this as a completely lost wasted year it's a very talented roster which is why i'm still giving them nine wins but looking at the quarterback situation in the afc with all the teams they have to play. I mean, A, they already have the third best quarterback in their own division, but you know, they're playing against the Steelers, the Falcons, the Chargers, the Patriots, the Ravens, the Bengals, the Dolphins, the Bills, the Bucks. Um, you know, then they they got the Texans who are no slouch either, you know, obviously. Uh, but then they're right back to the Bills, the Ravens, the Saints. I just I nine wins with Jacoby Brissett to me is the ceiling. The floor 
if it really bottoms out here and, you know, maybe Brissett gets hurt and we got Josh Dobbs on, that's a five-win team. And not only is it a five-win team, it's a five-win team without a first-round pick. So it it could go real bad here real quick. And I, I hope Browns fans are ready for a rather eventful year, to put it a nice way. I think it's going to be a valiant effort type of a year. It's going to be a valiant coaching effort by Stefanski and his staff. They're going to go out. They're professionals. They are going to, you know, chest up and take care of this thing. I, too, said nine wins as a ceiling. I don't see a way above that. I was a little bit tighter on the floor. I said six wins just because, again, Stefanski has dealt with this. He dealt with it last year. He managed to get eight wins in what was a really wild ride of a season then. I, a two-win drop, you know, after having played most of last year with a pretty injured Baker, even if Brissett stays healthy, I, I just don't see him getting below six. Josh Dobbs is really smart, and he's got a ton of talent around him. Is he going to win them any games? Definitely not. Will he keep him in games and, you know, Nick Chubb can go break off a few and keep him in games? I just don't see him dropping down to five. Could they? They could. Could they get to double digits? It would not in the AFC. I'm back to the Princess Bride and Miracle Max, right? It'd be a miracle. Uh, I don't (laughs) see them getting into double digit wins as they're aligned right now. Like it's going to be a valiant effort. They're going to come up a little short. It is really of their own doing. And, and that's where we're at. Yeah. It's a lost season. In all likelihood, I should say it's a loss, not guaranteed, but in all likelihood. Um, and then we're just we're gonna reconvene in 2023 and see where we're at because we still might be in the same position next summer, and and we won't know for for quite a while, to be honest. So we'll see. Uh, if you're a Browns fan, you made it this far in the show without <laughs> without spontaneously combusting. Uh, you're a real one. We appreciate you. Thank you for uh, for making it through it with us. When I come back to Cleveland, please don't hate me. Please give me more of that spicy sauerkraut. It was delicious. I, I promise I will be back soon. Um, and then uh, if you really want to see what the rest of the AFC North is dealing with, come back tomorrow. We're talking about the Steelers, your hated Pittsburgh Steelers. And then we're going to be going over the division from a macro perspective on Friday. So hope you'll come back. Join us for that. Uh, keep your chins up, Cleveland. Uh, it it will get better eventually. Might take a little while, but believe me, coming from a Texans fan, it'll get better eventually. So we'll see you guys back here, same time, same place. And until then, be good to each other. Later. Take care.